0: I would like to welcome Michael Green. Sorry, I just wanted to lose the bits of paper. Has anyone here never heard of Michael Green? That's okay. You're allowed to have not heard of Michael Green. You see, when I arrived at Oxford, which was some time ago, Michael was kind of this mythical figure of this hero of the faith who had been involved in seeing the charismatic renewal go from a sort of thing to something that was becoming normal and becoming part of church life. And we live in the good of the battle that Michael and his peers fought for the kingdom of God and charismatic gifts and the flow of the Holy Spirit. So I'm actually quite awed to be allowed to stand next to you, Michael. Oh. Um, because it was just... When, when we said, when I think Steve suggested, why don't we get Michael Green, I was like, would he really come and, like, be here? Because it's like, Michael Green? Mike, you, but Michael Green is here <laughs> with us. Anyway, what we always we do is just to... to help me get over that is um we're just going to interview michael with a two or three questions and then there's going to be a passage of scripture and then he's going to speak so michael just out of interest how long have you been
1: around oxford i'm no good at counting my wife is much better than that but we're quite a long time um i was rector of st aldate's for a dozen years or more and now um and then i sort of came back to Wycliffe Hall and worked there a bit and the Oxford Centre for Christian Apologetics, and we moved to Abingdon. So we've been around here. This has been our base for quite a long time. We've been overseas, but this has been the home. Fantastic, fantastic. I was saying to you earlier, to us it feels like
0: we're welcoming a friend home, so I'm glad you count this as part of your (laughs) home. That's, That's great. What was it like... Oh, I I, I like to think of myself as young. I'm not really. But, you know, what was it like discovering the Holy Spirit when hardly anyone around you knew of him?
1: (laughs) Well, of course, I wasn't on my own. But it really happened very simply... um, the, the church was, was, was strong and lively, and we, we started having a prayer meeting in my house, about 60 or 80 people, I suppose, um, on a Sunday night after the, yeah. um, the evening service. And gradually, um, gifts began to emerge, like uh, prayer in tongues yeah. and um, some healing and so on. And so people then said, look, why can't we move this into the weekly prayer meeting? So I said, great, that's what I was wanting. And then they said, well, why can't we move it into evening service? (laughs) I was wanting that too. But you've always got to let the the groundswell come from people. And then they said, well, why not bring it into the main service? And that's what happened. We began to have um, prophetic utterance and uh, prayer uh, in tongues and praise and so on in the main services. And I shall never forget, we had one time... Am I boring you with this? No, this is... <laughs> we, we had the Archbishop of Canterbury coming to um, to preach, and um, we, we, we made an agreement in the church that if people reckoned they'd got a prophetic word, they had a, came up and had a word with the leadership of people be due to kneel today. Uh, and um, just so as to avoid... <laughs> chaotic rubbish Um,
0: (laughs) so Uh, if if, if I wasn't able to squeeze you in this morning (laughs) you were on the message, you were brilliant, you were amazing, we just didn't quite manage to get it all in, sorry, you weren't Those two words, just to be clear. Sorry, Michael. Go for it.
1: We we had about 800 students there, I suppose, and worshipping together. One of these students came up to me with the Archbishop there just opposite me, and he said, I think the Lord has spoken, and I think this is what it is. And so I said, "Um, right. And I walked across and and showed it to the Archbishop of Canterbury. (laughs) and said, um, I believe this is from the Lord. And he said, well, I think so too. He said, the the end bit I don't think is, but the rest of it is. So um, we said to the chap, right, before the the archbishop gives the blessing, give this prophetic utterance. And he did. So that sort of thing began to become normal in the church. Fantastic. That's brilliant. Um,
0: So can you tell us a story... You've already told us one. Yeah, but yeah tell us I'll tell you one. lots of stories. <laughs> about seeing God break through in you know, powerful ways in Oxford.
1: Tell us a story about breakthrough. Uh, at the end of Acts 2, it talks about people being um, saved every day. And we had two or three periods like that uh, in all dates where people were coming to the Lord every day. Indeed, um, a couple of um, students read the alternative Oxford Prospectus, which is a sort of um, low-dive thing that you you go into if you want to know the real story. And they were told in this, once in your student life, you better go to St. (laughs) Alda. So they went, and they went when it was empty. But the power of God was such that people had been praying in that building or previous buildings, for well over a 1,000 years. Yeah. Wow. And the presence of God yeah. zapped them, so they came and knocked on my door and said, please, can you tell us how to become Christians? I said, yeah, go upstairs into my study and Brilliant. I'll tell
0: you. Brilliant. Fantastic. So, so what was it like, as an Anglican, working with these like strange new churches as they turned up on your doorstep? What was oh, it like
1: working they were a joy and they are a joy and I'm thrilled to be here today thank you very much for welcoming me and uh, i've known steve for a, a, a long time and uh, together we would pray we would sometimes have joint services uh, together a big easter celebration or something like that yeah. we'd have uh, baptisms in the river and uh, it was a party Uh, I loved it.
0: Fantastic. Well, we love welcoming you, Michael. (laughs) Why don't we all stretch our hands and we'll pray for him? And then there's going to be a scripture reading, and then he's going to preach. Father, we want to thank you for this this man, this man of yours, Michael, that you have blessed him, and would you enable him to speak your word powerfully into our beings, our hearts, our minds, that we would receive all that you have to give to us this morning. Through him and through your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can we play that video? And then, Michael.
2: Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary... By setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us.
1: you'll find those words written in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 it's the first seven verses of that and the writer is the Apostle Paul according to a later description he was uh, short he was wiry he was bald he had deep-set burning eyes a prominent nose and lots of energy And we know from his own uh, writings that he was passionate in telling other people about the Jesus Christ who had transformed his life. This was very fruitful work, but it was very costly. This man was kicked around the Mediterranean world like a football. Little money, no time for marriage. I quote his own words. Five times the Jews gave me 39 lashes with a whip. Three times I have been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. For a day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In danger from rivers. Danger from bandits. Danger from my own people. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and sisters, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, hungry and thirsty, often without food, cold and naked. Incredibly moving words from 2 Corinthians 11. Why did he do it? This guy was a Roman citizen by birth. He was the cream of the ancient world. Why did he do it? What a contrast with today's very laid-back approach. Most Christians in this country rarely mention Jesus to other people from Sunday to Sunday, unless perhaps as a swear word. We duck out of difficult discussions about morals, especially about sexual morals. We go to church on Sunday, probably, but it doesn't really affect the rest of the week. If a friend becomes a Christian, why, that's fine. But it doesn't really matter if they don't. He's a nice guy. He's a good footballer. He's okay as he is. Have we missed something, I wonder, in this 21st century? Has our Christianity become wet and soft? Wouldn't it be great if we could uh, get the apostle here today and ask him why he got so worked up? Why he felt it was harvest time? Paul, tell us why you gave up so much. Why you were willing to suffer so much in this extraordinary ministry of yours. And twice in this chapter I have open in front of me, it says, we do not lose heart. Why didn't you lose heart? Why didn't you pack up, Paul? Why did you bother? Oh, he says, I'd be glad to tell you the answer to that. The first thing is that I have received mercy. There it is in the very first verse I wrote in this chapter. I receive mercy. I am a forgiven man. That's the coiled spring behind everything that I do. I was the last person to deserve anything from Jesus Christ. I was a blasphemer, I was his opponent. I locked people up who followed him, and some of them I killed. But he has poured his wonderful love, his grace upon me. And I can't help telling other people in this society that has been so stripped of grace. I have received mercy, even me. I've come to realize the immensity of God's mercy more and more as I've gone on in my Christian life. When I wrote 1 Corinthians, I said that I was unfit to be called an apostle. When I wrote Ephesians, I called myself less than the least of all Christians. And when I came to write 1 Timothy, I acknowledge that I'm the chief of sinners. Down, down, down. Is that exaggeration? No, it's not. When I'm face to face with the Lord, there's only one person in the frame. I realize that I screw up daily, and daily the Lord forgives me. Where is love like that to be found? Anywhere in the world. I cannot keep quiet. I have received mercy. There's another reason why I do it, says Paul. I have received this ministry. Still there in that first verse. I hope you've got my book open in front of you. There it is. I've received this ministry. Just think of it. This ministry of drawing rebels back to their rightful Lord, of seeing men and women get right with God, he has entrusted it to people like me. What an incredible privilege. If the queen rang me up and said, uh, Hey, I've got a job I'd love you to do, and you're just the person to do it, wouldn't you jump to it? We have received this ministry. Not men and women in government, unless they're believers. Not judges and generals, unless they're Christians. But God has entrusted this message to just one group of people There are millions of them all over the world. But they all share the same experience. They've all been to the cross for mercy. They've all knelt at the feet of Jesus and cried for pardon. Those are the people that he entrusts with his message. And to my amazement, he said to me, not only will I have mercy on you, I will put you in my ministry. I will make you my trusted ambassador. No wonder I do not give up. I've got a story for you. It's a myth. You don't have to believe it, but I like it anyway. It's the story of when Jesus returned to heaven. There was a party given by the angels. Of course, there was a party when he came to earth. But a return home party for Jesus into heaven. And the angels were saying, as they looked down at that little floating ball down there called earth, they said, you've done a fantastic job down there, master. Absolutely incredible what you've done. But we got a question. What's your plan for continuing it? And Jesus said, well, my plan is quite simple. I've got uh, 12 men who have come to think of it. There's only 11. Uh, and some smashing women. And I'll leave it to them. And the angel Gabriel, the spokesman looked at him and said with an ashen face, but what if they fail? And he replied, if they fail, I have no other plan. That's why Paul does it. I have received mercy. I have received this ministry. And there is another reason, a third reason why I do it. It's because people need the Lord. Look at verse 3 in my little letter. Even if our gospel has a veil drawn over it, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Of God. People need the Lord. Folks, says the Apostle, I want you to understand the real needs of the people round about you the clever ones and the dim ones, the fit ones and the not very cool ones. They're all in the same boat. They all need the Lord. And actually, they all have three problems, and here they are. The first problem is that the gospel is meaningless to them. It's as though there's a curtain drawn across it, like there's a curtain drawn across. We don't know what lies behind, at least I don't know what lies behind that curtain. And it's like that. With many of the people you meet from Monday to Saturday, there is a curtain that stops the light coming in. They can't see what real Christianity is about. Christianity? Oh, it's out of date. Christianity? Oh, it's about church. It's about buildings. Oh, it's about trying to be good. That's so boring. It's about long-faced ministers. Or it's about the gray men and women of the God squad. They have no idea that it is friendship with the most wonderful person in the world. They have no idea that it enables them to stand tall before God with no guilt clinging to them for all the bad things they've done. Somebody else has cleaned them up. They have no idea that it's a lifetime job for the best employer in the world with the happiest lifestyle and the best gang of people to hang around with. They just don't get it, your friends. And they wonder why they remain dissatisfied, empty, unfulfilled. Jesus Christ is the one who can change all that, and they simply don't get it. It's meaningless to them. That's one-third of their problem. The second-third of their problem is that they are perishing. They haven't perished yet but they're in a very dangerous situation. You see, they have a life-threatening disease. We call it sin. Everyone has got this disease. It's like a virus in the bloodstream. It affects our words and our thoughts and our actions and our attitudes and our character. And in the end, it will affect our destiny. In my letters, I've had to write quite a lot about it. I've got a number of words for it: parabasis, which says means you see the line and you determinedly go to cross it; hamartia, you're shooting with an arrow and it falls short of the mark; akrasia, the inability to control. Yourself, anomia, lawlessness. And finally, extra hatred of God. That's true of our society today, as it was of St. Paul's. And this does two things. It creates guilt and grip. Guilt because God is holy and I am not. He is pure, and I am not. He is honest, and I am not. He is love, and I am not. An awesome gap opens up between God and me. And nothing can span it. When I was a Pharisee, I used to think that trying hard and being religious... And synagogue services and prayers five times a day would buy pardon from God until I came to see that even the ability to do this came from Him alone, and that anyway, He doesn't need anything that I have to offer. So I'm left penniless. I have no bargaining chips with God. If I try to negotiate with him my only hope was mercy and praise God he poured it out on me first on that Damascus Road and then every day since but it's not only my guilt before God that's the trouble it's the power it's the grip of this stuff that it has in my life the lies the pornography The anger, the substance abuse, the self-centeredness, the jealousy, and all the rest. My Jesus said, whoever commits sin becomes a slave of sin. I put it rather differently in my letter to the Romans, but it means the same thing. I try to do right, but I cannot do it. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So I find there is a law that when I want to do what is good, evil lies close at hand. I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law, at war with the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? There's the grip of sin. It's like a desert rat caught by a hawk, and it twists and it struggles, and it chews at the leg of the hawk that is carrying it away. And blood begins to flow from the hawk. And the faster the bird flies, the more the blood flows. And eventually, it crashes and collapses into the desert. Sin gets us all in the end. That's why people need the Lord. They all have the sin virus, however charming they are. However able they are, it brings guilt and grip. There is no way out. Those are two-thirds of the reasons why people are perishing. And here's the third third. They are blinded by the God of this world, Satan. I'm speaking to 21st century people. And many of you don't believe that there is an anti-God spirit behind all the evil in the world. But there is. Jesus believed in Satan. I believe in Satan, says Paul. I know too much about him. He's real. And his great aim is to keep people from Jesus... He doesn't mind how wise they are, or clever they are, or nice they are, so long as they don't change sides from his side to Jesus' side. And his method is to dazzle them. Dazzle them with sex and power and wealth and success and intellect. Make sure they don't think about where they came from. Or where they're heading. You're a great guy. You don't need Jesus. Look how strong you are. Look how beautiful you are. Look how successful you are. Look how clever you are. You're fine just as you are. It's lies. It's propaganda. People need the Lord. They are dazzled, blinded by the God ...of this age. Paul, I, I wonder if I could interrupt you for a moment, could I? Because it was when I was about 18... ...that I realized this. And that actually changed my life. I saw that my friends desperately needed the Lord. I knew the Lord by then... ...and I realized that it was my duty... And it has since been my life's work to pass this good news on to them. People need what I've been given. And that has been burning in my heart like a fire all these years. I hope the fire never goes out until I die. But back to Paul. So that's why I can't shut up, says Paul. People need the Lord. I've received mercy. I've been given this ministry. And maybe, maybe we could turn to the apostle, if, if he was here, and say, I see, it's not just that you're a forgiven man, not just that um, you're given the privilege of being Christ's ambassador, but uh, because people are perishing. They simply don't get what you're on about. They're blinded by the God of this world. Okay, Paul, I think we've got the message now why you are so passionate. But could we ask you one more question? One more question? Yes, of course. What is it? Well, how do we do it? Oh, he said, I'll be delighted to answer that. And it's all actually in front of you in the very same passage. You see, it all begins with asking the Lord to shine in our hearts. That's what it says in verse 6, that God has shone in our hearts. You can't do this stuff. You can't do anything for him until you've let the Lord shine in your heart. It was Dorothy Sayers who said, when I look into my heart, I find it full of dusty corners. That's an understatement. We need to let him see the mess in us and forgive and cleanse and release. It has to start. All Christian ministry has to start with us getting right with God. There are too many people trying to do Christ's work who are not yet Christians. They're not converted. They haven't welcomed his light into their hearts and his cleansing into the mess that is there. God will only employ forgiven sinners in his service. That's the start of the race. Nobody can avoid it. You can't avoid it. And if you haven't asked the Lord to shine, his burning searchlight on the muck in your life, and to come with the antiseptic of the cross to cleanse it all out, then this celebration today is a wonderful opportunity to do so. But if you have given in to Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus the Lord made him the boss, made him the number one, as verse 5 puts it, if you've welcomed him into the clay jar of your life so that he's the treasure, although you're the very frail jar of clay, if you've done that, then basically there are three ways I have found, says St. Paul, to pass the message on. Would you like me to share them with you? Oh, yes, please, we say. Please go ahead. Okay, he says. Here they are. First, there is our lifestyle. Verse 2, we have renounced the shameful things that one hides. We refuse to practice cunning or to falsify God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. Your lifestyle. The biggest hindrance to the growth of Christianity is the lifestyle of Christians. Renounce the shameful things, says Paul. The things that nobody can see except you and God's searchlight. Renounce those things. Decide to say... God, I want to get rid of these, but I need your help to do it. The drugs, the pornography, the jealousy, and all the other stuff. And then don't handle the Word of God in a crooked way. Don't pretend that the Christian life is easy. It's not. Don't falsify God's Word by quoting verses out of context but by showing the truth or by telling the truth. The Greek word means either. Actually, it means both. We've got to show the truth by our lives before anybody's going to listen to us telling the truth. He says, as we do that by our lives and by our lips, we commend ourselves to people's conscience in the sight of God. We certainly don't commend ourselves to them as uh, the the person they're going to listen to. They say, oh, shucks, the guy is crazy, forget him. But at night, when they can't sleep, and they toss from side to side, and their conscience gets busy, they may well say, there's something about that guy's life. I don't know quite what it is, but it shows me up. I wonder, I wonder. Lifestyle is vital. They've got to see it works. So often they can't hear what we say because our life shouts so loud to the contrary. Lifestyle. Secondly, lips, verse 5. We proclaim, not ourselves... Don't listen to any leaders, any uh, pastors who are pushing themselves and are full of egotism. You can't give the impression that you're great at the same time as giving the impression that Jesus is Savior. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. That's the criterion of real ministry, being prepared to serve other people. Okay, proclaiming Christ as Lord. You know, people often think it's enough to live a decent life. That is not so. They've got to hear about the source of that life. Suppose that the first Christians had said, well, we've we've allowed Jesus to clean up our lives, but we're not going to tell anybody about it. The gospel would have died in the first generation. The gospel is only one generation away from extinction. And if we don't pass on that message, who is going to do it? The word proclaim in the original can include preaching. And we do need much better preaching in this country. But it can also mean chattering, wittering, nattering. It's a wonderful word, laline. And you can do that over a cup of tea or a coffee, in a restaurant or in a pub or wherever you meet people. You can say something for Jesus. And in particular, there are six words that I've found are particularly helpful. They're words everyone can use here. They, they don't come from the Bible. At least uh, they do, actually. But <laughs> uh, you don't need to use a Bible for them. There's the three words I have found. You're with somebody who's bereaved. And you're weeping with them. But the moment comes when you say, you know, I've found there is a place for comfort in this. It's the Jesus who rose from the dead. And he could be alongside you as he's comforted me in my bereavement. And whatever the circumstances, I have found is personal testimony. Personal testimony is critical. People will not listen to politicians. They will not listen to preachers. They will not listen to authority figures. They're too flawed. But they will listen to a friend who says, I have found. That is the essence of the postmodern generation. they have fed up with history and philosophy and all that stuff, but they want to know what's real to real, ordinary people alongside them. I have found. There's tremendous power in that testimony. I have found. You could say that, couldn't you? Every one of you could. Our stories are all different. They're all interesting. And people will want to know if you have found something when they let on about the mess and the plight in their life. And the other three words, you find them coming again and again in the first chapter of John's Gospel. Come and see. Come and see. You've got something very wonderful working for you here. You've got a big crowd of people who love the Lord, where his Holy Spirit is welcome, gifts are operating, and the sense of the beyond is in the midst. That is a tremendous asset. Bring people to this church so that they can encounter the living God and come to know them for themselves. But it's not just church. I mean, we can do this on the streets. It's lovely that these days there is healing on the streets in many places. There is witnessing for Jesus on the the streets. That's very tough. Some of the people doing this have been run in by the police. And they've lost legal cases. And things are going to get harder in this country. We pray for persecuted Christians overseas. We are on the way to being persecuted. That is happening. More and more, the liberties of Christians are being whittled away. And if you're not aware of that, you're not aware of the news. But it's got to be our lives that shine, and then our lips that speak, not of church and religion and all that stuff that people are bored with, but of the living, wonderful, transforming Jesus as Lord. And the final thing, really, is your prayers. Not only your lifestyle and your lips, but your prayers. Oh, you say, I don't see anything about prayer in these few verses? You're quite right. It's not there. But it is implied. Look. Look. He says, the God of this world, by that he means the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the true image of God, which is Jesus. That's his aim. The God that blinds the mind. Then he goes on to say, but the God who way back in Genesis said, let there be light, the God with the big G, has shone in our hearts to give the very thing that old Nick didn't want to happen. He has given the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You've got the God with a small G that blinds the mind. You've got God with the big G that shines in the heart. Like two great peaks in the Rocky Mountains. And in between those two, in between verse four, the God that blinds, and verse six, the God that shines, you've got verse five. We preach, we preach, a little squeak, we preach. What's the good of preaching when there's a God of this world that blinds the mind? What's the good of preaching when there's only one way that can get through, and that's the God that gives light? You've got to pray. That's what it is. You've got to pray to the God who shines that he will smash the power of the God that blinds the mind and will shine into the hearts of those difficult neighbors next door. Okay? Don't forget that as you go away. There is a God with a small g that that blinds the minds very effectively in this country at present. And there is the God that has shone in your heart. Preaching, even being people's chattering to them over coffee, even being their servant for Jesus' sake is not going to be enough unless God shines in the heart. Praise God, it's his business. It's his job. Our job is to pray. So that's why I bother, says Paul. And that's how I do it. Why don't you guys have a go at it? Your friends are perishing. You have treasure... In the clay jar of your life, go share it. Share it with your lifestyle. Share it with your lips. Share it with your prayers. And trust God to use you. He will. Wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone here this morning pledged to make ourselves available to God for this ministry? the blinded perishing people i want to end with a story it's not my story but i was very struck by it you know how it is in the morning when the alarm goes and you're so gaga and there's this sort of half waking <laughs> state well in this half waking state The person who produced the story said, um, I I was like that. And and in this sort of uh, stage, I had a picture of my life. It was a room packed with filing cabinets. The books I'd read. The friends I'd cultivated. The journeys I'd taken. Some of them were very embarrassing. The friends I'd let down the whopping lies I had told the girls I had dated. And one of these drawers in the filing cabinet looked very bright. The handle of it was shining. It clearly hadn't been used. The notice on that tray was this, people I have shared the gospel with. You could have counted them on the fingers of one hand. It was not a pretty picture in that room. I tried to pull out the worst cards and throw them away, but they wouldn't come. I wanted to lock the room and throw away the key. And then, and then I saw him. Oh, no. Not him. Not here. But he looked very gently at me. And he went to the filing cabinets. Why does he go to the worst cabinets first? Why does he read everything? I crumpled up in a corner, and wept. And then I saw an amazing thing. He wrote his own signature on each of those accusing cards in blood-red letters. I didn't know where to look. My eyes were wet with tears. And then he came over to me with tears streaming down his face. He put his arm around me and he said, It is finished. And together we left the room and we did not need to lock it. I can tell you one thing. My file telling people I have shared the gospel with, that file... Has filled out a lot more since then. What about yours? To have a moment of quietness, reflection, and prayer before Neil comes to draw the service towards an end.